slightly behind, but that's okay. We got Jesus people in the room, don't we? Right? You guys hungry? Got good stuff for you this morning. You're not going to leave here the same, I can assure you of that. So that's right. That's right. So um, if you're giving your offering, just make your way in and getting coffee, make your way in as soon as you can, but we're going to start. Uh, we're wrapping up the series on Tale of Two Prophets. And we've been talking about Elijah and Elisha. And God's economy focuses in the Old Testament around the nation of Israel, around a group of people called the Hebrew people. And so everything in the Old Testament is relating from that context. In the New Testament, the pivot is towards the church. The roots are still in the Hebrew, uh, from the Hebrew, but the focus is now the church. And what happens here at this time is the Hebrew people had a nation, and after Solomon, David, King David was the sort of the, the supreme king. He was the one where the empire, when it, Jerusalem or Israel was at its, at its height, he was the king during that time. And David had a son named Solomon, and Solomon's son, basically his son uh, did some wrong things, and the nation of Israel divided. The northern people, say with me, did not follow the Lord. The southern kingdom, Judah, say this with me, Judah stayed loyal. So what happened to the northern kingdom is they went into a period of darkness. They left the light. What happens when you leave the light? We only have two, we have not a lot of alternatives, right? Light or darkness. So they left the light. They went into a darkness. They went into the darkness as a culture. They went into the darkness politically. They went into the, the darkness spiritually, socially, economically. On every level, they went into darkness. And God sent a prophet named Elijah to begin to reveal light to them. Elijah ministered, then after Elijah was finished, he, uh, he partnered with the Lord, sent another prophet named Elisha, and here's what we're talking about with Elisha. What's happening here, we're going to get into it, Elisha is at the end of his ministry, he's at the end of his life, he's been ministering there for a lot of decades, he's been helping the kings and lots of miracles and transformation and powerful things have begun finally to begin to happen. There was a king that he was last ministering with, so we're going to, we're going to, just talk a little bit about this King Jehu, and King Jehu had two sons, and his last son is Jehoash, which is the one we're going to talk about the most at the end of the sermon here, the end of the message. But Jehu was the last king. Jehu was a king that Elisha finally broke through with. And Jehu decided that he was going to begin to listen to the priests. He was going to begin to try to restore the worship of the Lord back into the land. And so Jehu began to listen to the priests, but he failed and his sons failed on two levels. Say this with me. They didn't go far enough. Right. Say this. Half-hearted efforts produce half-hearted results. So the king refused. He and his sons failed to do two significant things. The first thing they failed to do was to tear down the places of false worship. So while they were bringing the people back to the worship of the Lord, they allowed all of these other places of false worship to exist. The second thing they failed to do is they failed to reconcile or bring unity to the nation that they had divided from. So the first thing they did is they didn't recognize the idolatry and they didn't deal with the idolatry. The second issue was is they didn't reconcile their past. God was expecting them not only to restore worship, but begin to reconcile their past with Judah, and they didn't do that. Neither Jehu, Jehu started, but he didn't go far enough. 
for whatever reason, then his sons kind of allowed that, that to exist, and they too didn't go far enough. And the Bible said they continued in the sins of, of Jeroboam, who was the guy who actually created the division, and so they, they continued doing what their ancestor Jeroboam had done, which was create division and worship falsely. Now what does this mean to us? Well, it was the failure of the priesthood as much as it was the king's fault. The priest should have been counseling them extensively and telling them, you need to take this further. God's not going to compete with these gods. He's not going to allow that to happen. He's not going to bless the nation until we're fully His, until we come into a position of devotion that the, the fullness of the blessing isn't going to come. And because they would not tear down the high places, because they would not reconcile their past, they found themselves remaining in bondage. So what is the lesson? We can draw this as believers, as Christians, and we can look at areas of our life, and until we recognize and begin to deal with the areas of our life that consume us with idolatry, and I'm going to talk about that, and until we begin to reconcile the issues of our past, we will remain in bondage. You can have a title over you, you can have a position over you, you can have all of those things over you, but those are two of the conditions that relate to freedom. And so what is, a, what is, an, what is an idol? And what is a false place of worship? Well, we can look at this way. Say this with me. A God is a master passion that drives my life. So what is the master passion that drives your life? What is it? What is driving you? Okay? So what is driving you isn't as, it, what needs to drive you is Jesus, his purposes, his heart. Where do you draw your identity from? This is another big piece. So your idol is where you draw your identity from, and your idol is what drives you, what motivates you. Now, the things that we're going to talk about here briefly, none of them are bad things. They are only bad because they are elevated into a status that is above the Lord. Okay? Money is not a bad thing. Money is a gift and money is a tool. But money becomes an idol when it is elevated above the status of Jesus. Do we understand what I'm talking about? Success is not a bad thing. God help us to make the Christian want to become more successful and hungry for success. Success is not a bad thing. Success is only bad when it supersedes the will of God or when it goes above God's will or God's intention or when it's not subjected to what God wants. Do you understand that? Identity is a big piece. People draw their identity from idols. We draw our identity from idolatry. So we're talking in first service that can be both a you know, we can look at it as a, maybe a positive aspect, or we can look at it as a negative aspect. A lot of people draw their identity, they believe lies, and they worship at the altar of a lie, rather than worshiping at the altar of truth. And here's what it looks like. Well, I don't really believe that God loves me. I mean, I know he does in kind of some abstract way, but I really don't believe that he truly loves me, or I really don't believe that God is truly going to come through for me. That is a lie. And who told you that? And you are worshiping agreeing, bowing at the altar of a lie rather than worshiping at the altar of truth. God will deliver you. God will provide for you. Even if you fail, God will turn it into a success. That's truth. And so what we end up doing is we, or we, look, we draw identities from that and we say, well, you know, the culture says I'm stupid. My parents said I'm stupid. I believe I'm stupid. Well, God doesn't tell you that at all. The culture says I'm unwanted. My parents say I'm unwanted. I feel like I'm unwanted. That's a lie. That's an idol. And what that idol is doing to you is it's keeping you in bondage because it's not truth. And we are bowing to an idol. You understand that? So people drawing their identity from false things. You're drawing, you're drawing who you are from a false understanding of something that becomes an idol. We draw our identity from truth. 
Truth says you're a son and a daughter. Here, here we go. Ready? Okay, that's good. I, come on, you guys can clap. It's fine. It's good. It's good. There. Yeah. Because the phone's ringing. The clue phone's ringing, right? You're not going to be a son and a daughter. If you're in Christ, you are right now. You understand that? Now, here's the, here's the, here, right here, here's the punchline. Just because you're a son and daughter, it doesn't mean you look like it. It doesn't mean you act like it. It doesn't mean anything in your life testifies to the fact that you are a son and daughter. Yet truth says that you are a son and a daughter before the, before the father. That's truth. And what happens is, is when we begin to worship at the altar of truth rather than a lie, reality begins to change. When you begin to honor and see your life as I am a son before my father. He loves me. I didn't send in a resume for this. He gave it to me. He's declared this over me. I will no longer see myself beneath the identity that he has given me. That's step one. Yes, thank you very much. Yes, that's step one. Step one is knowing what he says, worshiping at the altar of truth, conforming yourself into that truth and saying, I will no longer, I refuse to see myself as a businessman. I refuse to see myself as a loser. I refuse to see myself as an intellectual superior. I refuse to see myself as unwanted. Pick your pick one. I will only see myself as a son before my father. And everything else subjects itself to that. I am a son of the highest. That's who you are. You are an heir in, this is it right now, you are an heir in this world and you are an heir in the world to come. You say, Kevin, what does that look like? I have no idea, but that's the truth. I have no idea. You will rule and reign the kingdom. He is going to give it to you. You have spiritual power and authority in this life. You don't have to earn it. It's been given to you. What you must learn to do is activate it. Big difference. I'm not earning anything. I'm learning to activate what's already mine. In the world to come, we are heirs and eternal heirs. We will rule with him and we will reign with him. Amen. We will be superior to the angels themselves. Yeah. This is what the Bible says. And people go, well, what does that mean? I have no idea. And I told first service, if anybody tries to tell you they know what that means, they don't. Because eye is not seen, ear is not heard. It has not even entered into the heart of man what God has prepared. He has given you what, it, what it's to make you do is to stand in awe. And to go, this is who I am, this is who I am, and then all of my life, whether I do business, I do business as a son of the highest. If, whatever I do, if I'm a father, I'm a father as a son of the highest. You understand that? If I'm a neighbor, I'm a neighbor as a son of the highest. Everything I do filters through that identity. It doesn't filter through my PhD. It doesn't filter through my, you know, my, you know, uh, I never graduated high school. It doesn't, it doesn't filter through any of that stuff. You understand? That's not your identity. Your identity is that. What you do is not who you are. Who you are is we do who you, what you do needs to come underneath who you are. If you're a husband, you're a husband as a son of the highest. What does it mean to be a son and a daughter? Son and, sons and daughters are directly related to obedience. Directly related to obedience. We are sons. Jesus said when he was talking about sons and daughters, if you want to know what sons and daughters look like, just read your Bible and look where every time Jesus referenced it. And you'll see a very, you'll begin, if you'll pray, and you'll begin to see a very clear picture of what he was talking about. I'll give you just two quick ones. He talked about the two stories of the sons. One said he would do it and didn't. The other said he wouldn't do it and did it. Which one was the son? The one that did it. So, you understand that? It's one, so Jesus says the son does what their father asks. 
If you're a daughter, you do what your father asks. You don't do what you want. You don't do what the neighborhood wants. You don't do what the culture wants. You don't do what the government wants. You do what Jesus wants. You don't think as you want to think. You don't think as school's taught you to think. You don't think as the culture thinks. You don't, you don't think that way. You think as the Father would have you to think. You take your ideas and you subject them to his. That's what it means to be a representation. That's what sons and daughters means. It's directly related. The second issue is with daughter when she claimed her inheritance. The woman with the issue of blood, she knew what was hers. Jesus calls her daughter. So sons and daughters, ready? are obedient to their father. They are about their father's business. That's what we do. So what is it that you do? Whatever you do, that is subjected to the father's business. If you're a counselor, then you're a counselor according to the father's business. If you're an administrator, then you're an administrator according to the father's business. Everything is done from his world into this. There's a lot of dynamics in play. Second thing is, is that you, you, you understand what's rightfully yours. I say to you that the son is no different than a, a son is no different than a slave as long as they are a child, though they be heirs of all. Sons and daughters are no different than slaves until they understand what is rightfully theirs and until they grow up into maturity to take that position and claim their inheritance and operate in accordance of obedience to their father. The Bible tells us in Galatians, you are no, you're a son or a daughter, you're an heir of everything, but you're no different than a slave because you're immature. You're a child and you're under tutelage, and you're under instruction, you're under a heavenly discipline until you get it. We come up with all these philosophies as Christians, and this is our problem. So we come up with this philosophy. I don't have to give. I don't believe the tithe is for today. I don't have to give. Who told you that? Who told you that? Who, who told you that? Nobody. Nobody. What, you made that up? Or you got somebody's theological perspective that doesn't line up with Scripture? Nobody told you that. Jesus never renounced the tithe, Christian. He affirmed it. In Matthew, he told the Pharisees, the legalists, they were the ones tithing. They tithed to the exact percentage on everything. But they wouldn't be merciful and they wouldn't be loving. And the Lord said, you should tithe, yes. You guys got that one down. Good for you, check the box, star in the corner. But what you're neglecting is mercy and love tithe, but don't forget the weightier matters, which is love and justice. He never denounced the tithe ever, ever. You cannot find that in the New Testament at all. What you will find is he took it from a mandate. He took it from a rule where he said, I'm going to make where you have to give it. And he took it and he released it. And he said, I want it to come from a cheerful heart. I want it to come from a heart that's been set free. I want the offering and the tithe to come from a heart that genuinely knows who they are and who I am and gives to me out of gratitude. That's what he did. That's why it's like, Christian, you want to keep your tithe? Go ahead, but don't you dare tell me that God, doesn't, that God did, did away with it because he didn't. So if you want to play the game of semantics, we can play the game of semantics, but the tithe exists. It's never been taken away. It made it through the cross, but was altered. Instead of it being a legal requirement, it is now an offering of grace. And then we get Christians that get, I get pastors that tell me, man, you know, the tithing pastors go, don't teach that, Kevin, because then people are going to abuse the grace. I'm like, well, they're abusing, they're not abusing my grace. They're, in other words, they won't give. If they feel like they don't have to give, then they won't. Well, then I tell them, then that's, the, that's a fundamental error. Well, all that's doing is revealing you don't know who you are. You don't know who he is. You don't know what he's done. And you don't really know what he's done for you. And you don't know who you are or you would give out of an identity. And you would go, not just this, but everything, Lord. You, there's a fundamental revelation that you're lacking. You may have it in your head, and you may have some religious knowledge, but you do not have the revelation of being a son and a daughter. If you did, you would do it. 
So that's what it does. Yeah, come on. That's what it reveals. It reveals our error. I get Christians that tell me I have brothers and sisters, lots of them, and they'll tell me I don't believe in going to the body of Christ. I believe I'm, I'm part of the universal body of Christ, Kevin. Wherever I go, there the church is. In fact, Kevin, where we are right now, two or more, we are the church. A semantical game based in nonsense. I'm going to tell it to you right straight. I tell them, I say, I feel like I want to take a basket of flowers, put a laurel on my head, and start throwing flowers in the air. Because that's kind of like, it's this kind of, you don't know what you're talking about. There is the, the universal body of Christ is conceptual, yes, but that is not, you are called to commit and connect to a church. It's called the body, okay? It's not the universal body, it's the local body. It, you cannot tell me that that is not what God ordained. It is there. And so what people do is what we do is we have selfish perspectives and we have issues within our own heart. We're greedy by nature or we don't believe that God will do what he says. We don't believe he'll bless the offering. That's truth. So let's just deal with it. You're greedy and selfish, so that's what it's revealing about you. Then the second side that it's revealing about you is that you have the sin of unbelief. You don't believe that Jesus is going to do what he said he's going to do. Because if you did, you would give. But because you don't give, it shows you that you don't believe that he's going to do what he's going to do. So it doesn't matter. You can abuse the grace all you want. All it's doing is, all it's doing is revealing you. It's showing you that you lack faith, right? It's showing you you don't know who you are. It reveals you. We have Christians say they don't need to come to, Christ, come to church. You know what that reveals? An orphaned heart. An orphaned heart. A heart that tells you you are fatherless. A heart that tells you you have no place in the Father's house. A heart that tells you you are not worthy to be at his table. That's what it's telling you. It's revealing you. It's showing you you have the issue. The church doesn't have the issue, Christian. You have the issue. Well, I don't like church. I don't believe in apex leaders. I had a guy tell me that. Hey, you don't believe in apex leaders. I said, really? I said, so can this organization fire you? Well, that would never happen. I go, do you guys vote? Oh, yeah, we vote. We vote on everything. I said, yeah? So he go, you got to say there's 10 people in the room. Eight of them vote you out. Do you, do you, do you, can they throw you out? Because the eight voted you out. He goes, oh, no, they can't do that. I go, so you're an apex leader. It's complete hypocrisy. It's complete hypocrisy. And what we do is we foster doctrines, beliefs, dogmas, and opinions around issues that are related only to ourselves. You don't like church because you have a fatherless issue. And until you deal with the fatherless issue, nothing's going to change. You can talk about being the universal body of Christ all you want. And you can talk about God's your father. I'm going to tell you if I watched your life, it would be revealed to me in, in technicolor. You are fatherless. And you don't believe you're worthy to sit at his table. You don't believe you're worthy to be a part of his house. That's the fundamental problem. And until you deal with that, nothing's going to change. I have friends that tell me, oh, no, you know, I'm here. I don't believe in being in the church. I said, listen, the Bible says to him be glory through the church. Where's the glory? I just told you. Well, we're the church universal. Eh, wrong answer. So let's just give an F on that exam. That, you failed that one. So that one, we can just push that aside because that doesn't bear witness. God's not aligning with your doctrine. You can create that as a doctrine, but that doesn't mean heaven's aligned with it. You can give all kinds of semantical opinions about it and put a three or four verses underneath it, but that doesn't mean it's sound doctrine. That doesn't mean it lines up with the decrees of heaven. And we can make these decrees, but that doesn't mean God is agreeing with them. And there's lots of those. 
We got those all over the place. We got all kinds of doctrines and opinions, but it doesn't mean that heaven's aligned with it. Our heart needs to be what heaven is aligned with. What do you say, Lord? I spent two years studying the church, two years of my life, ready? In a consistent way where I studied what the church is, why the church is, what it's all about, and why God wants it. Have you taken two years of your life to actually look at that? I've taken it. So when I speak about this, I know full well what I'm talking about. I've gone into it, I've looked at it, I understand it, and I understand why people have the opposite opinions, because they have an issue with themselves. The last thing we want to do is we want to believe that we have a problem. That's a lot. Well, the problem can't be mine. No, you see, Pastor, the Lord did away with the tithe long ago. Yeah, I'm like, show me where. You know, he loves a cheerful giver. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Okay, you know, all these other things. So we're under grace. We're not under law. Yeah, again, a semantical game without scripture. A semantical game without doctrine. We're the universal church with semantical game without scripture. A semantical game without verse. Give me the text. Don't give me your opinion. Don't give me what somebody else says. Show me the text. Because if you want blessing, you need to align with what God has ordained. It's just that simple. So if we're sons and daughters, we understand this. We're about our father's business. We have no excuse to not connect to a church. I'm sorry. There's a gazillion brands of church in America. A gazillion. You want churches with, with recliners on the front row that vibrate? We got you. You like skinny jeans and smoke machines and you want to feel like you're at a rave? We got you. You like it traditional with a bell choir and all, you know, and everybody singing hymns all the time? We got you. Th that's not the problem. The problem's you. You're the problem. You don't know how to be yoked. You don't know how to come under authority. You don't know how to humble yourself. Oh, don't tell me the problem's me. The problem's you. And I'm telling you this because if a doctor diagnoses your problem, he's trying to help you. Because if you stay in this state, it's going to decay, it's going to get worse, and you're going to die. And so Jesus is so loving, he shows you your problem, but he lets you stay in it if you want to. And we wonder why things misfire. It's because we're not in alignment. We have to come into alignment. We've got to be brutal with it. So these are the idols. We worship idols. Idols. Idols of opinion. Idols of, idols of differences. Next slide. Here's that. Ready? We're going to ask this question. You open up your hearts. He's not going to show you right here and now. But what you're going to see over the course of this qu question, Holy Spirit's going to show you. Why don't you just say, Holy Spirit, show me my idols. He's going to show you. Do you know why? Because he believes what you say. If you ask him a question, he genuinely believes you. He doesn't even question that you mean what you say. It doesn't even occur to him. I've, I've, one of the things I'm ministering with the Spirit all the time is I watch how he ministers, and I watch what someone will say, and I watch the Lord move over it, and I'm sitting here going, you know, Lord, I'm not really convinced they meant what they said, but I just saw you move over it. So it's like, you believe that they meant what they said, but I'm not really convinced that they meant that, you know? And when I watch this, like I observe the Holy Spirit, it's like how eager is all you do is give, if, if you say something, he honestly believes you mean what you say. He doesn't even question it. It's Corinthians. Love believes all things. He believes it. So when you say, Holy Spirit, show me my idols, he goes, cool. I'm going to show you your idols. And now you're going to be going through the week, and he's going to start pointing stuff out to you. You'll be going through the month, and he's going to start revealing stuff to you. He's going to start showing you. Money's your problem, Kevin. You worship money. I'm not, that's not my problem. I have other problems, but that one isn't one. <laughs> He'll show you this is your problem. And it's not an issue of money. It's just that you have, he'll show you this. You have greed in your heart. You have selfishness in your heart. You have unbelief in your heart. 
you have limited thinking in your heart. You believe that you have to make, you don't, you don't trust me. You believe these things and you elevate money above what I want. That's an idol. That's an idol. You elevate material things. Nothing wrong with money. God loves money. I told you last week, you should believe God for 50 million. You should believe God for 200,000. You should believe God for 50,000. You should believe him for whatever it is. According to your faith, believe him. But at the same time, covenant with him and make a direct agreement, not some generic agreement, that I will give X if you will do this. If you will move me, I will be open to you as you move me here. But if you move me here, I will give this. If you give me a job making $10,000 more, I'm going to give 30% of that raise. Oh, you better be careful. All of a sudden, Jesus is going to pivot. And within a period of time, a $10,000 raise is going to come your way. And you're going to go, woo, oons, 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 oons. I'm going to get some 22s on my Escalade, you know. You're going to start wanting to upgrade your life, and the Lord's going to go, oh, remember that covenant you made with me? That, oh, well, you know, Lord, things have changed, and I got, you know, I got to get a better house now, and I got to do this, and I got to do that. He won't change, but you will. You have to be, be careful to honor what you tell him, because I'm going to tell you he will do it. But the question isn't, if you lie to him, then what's going to happen? You're going to notice Something's going to change. It's, it's, not, it's going to give you this, and it's, something's not going to be going right because you made an agreement with the Lord, and you're not honoring it. Just a thought. Material things. He has no problem with material things. God help us. We need material things. The problem is, is when your material things rise above Him, your need for material things is greater than your need for the Lord. You're more interested in being a show-off with whatever you have than you are about honoring Jesus. You're drawing your identity and your idolatry comes from your material things. Nothing wrong with material things. Nothing wrong with money. Nothing wrong with this. We, we, honor, we, we follow false love, right? So I see people all the time. Again, I'm a pastor, and I don't judge you, so there's no judgment here. It's just a mere observation. That's all it is. I'm just observing. You let the Lord deal with you. And see, people leave the faith and go pursue. Woman's following the Lord, loving Jesus. She meets a guy that's not really interested in Jesus, and she leaves her faith and leaves everything and goes and chases that. That's an idol. I hate to tell you, that's an idol. And what is the idol revealing? The idol is revealing an inward brokenness with you. You don't understand the love and the intimacy with your father. You don't believe that God would give you something better than what you have, so you take this upon yourself. It's revealing something about you. That's what it's doing. And you've got to let, when you see the idolatry in your life, you have to find the root of the idolatry. We like to cut the trees down, but we never deal with the root. I see men do the same thing. They're worshiping the Lord. They meet a girl. She likes to party. She likes to this. She likes to that. And they leave everything, and they go off and follow her. That's an idol. And then before long, they find themselves in bondage. Maybe they got something that's itchy. I don't know. Something happens. Stop it, Kevin bad pastor stop that we follow the wrong things and we walk into idolatry and we doing the wrong things and we find ourselves in bondage we have fear fear is an idol we have dreams hopes aspirations but we're afraid we're afraid we don't have what it takes we're afraid what other people will think of us and we bow to the idol of fear rather than rather than honoring god by risking into the future that he set before us this is a prison fear yeah fear fear is never a protection. Fear is a prison. And many people are so worried. So you want to know where my problem is? Right here. It's not because I, I'm, there's, there's things in my life that I'm called. I'm just going to run naked with you guys. You guys can all judge me and go, look at that pastor. Oh my gosh. 
you believe that guy has that issue? Ha, 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 ha. And I'm going to go, yeah? Yeah? At least I'm going to tell you. Like things that God has called me to do that I'm apprehensive about. Because and what, what, why am I apprehensive when God has given me a clear path? And it reveals something in my heart that I didn't know was there. And if I didn't confront it, it if, I, if it wasn't brought into this, I would never even realize it. I'm afraid of negative opinion. I'm afraid of negative opinion. Well, aren't we all? Don't we all want to be loved? But I have to confront that. And for the most part, I would look at my life and go, I don't really think that's true. I don't mind if people disagree with me and, you know, different things like that. But there's something about this higher calling that he's summoning me towards. And I'm hesitant and I won't do it. And I'm asking him why. Right. And then he goes, you're afraid of negative opinion, Kevin. You're afraid of what the ultimate result is going to be. Yes, people are going to be blessed. Yes, people are going to be moved. Yes, all of these wonderful things are going to happen, but you're going to get negative opinion. You're going to get it. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. There's people in this world that are just cynical. There's haters. Haters are going to hate. Okay? They hate for no reason. There's no reason for them to hate. They just hate. They hate out of jealousy. They hate out of strife. They hate out of contention. But I have to confront that within my heart. I'm like, why? Lord shows me, and I'm like, why won't I do it? Ready? Here's what it looks like, Christian. You ask him, and he tells you. And you don't need to shine in. Here's what we do. We guess. I hate guesswork. We go, well, I think it's this, and I think it's that. No, ask the Holy Spirit and let him tell you. And he's going to shoot an arrow right through your heart. And he's going to show you what your major malfunction is. He's going to show you what's holding you back. You're afraid of this. And I'm going to go, oh, my gosh, I am. You're right. And I'm like, what do I do? What do I do? And then he starts showing me and showing me and showing me and showing me and showing me. And the very thing that I'm afraid of, every single person. I know people, that's all they do in this world is try to do, try to do good. That's all they try to do. But yet, if you, if you listen to the opinions about these people, you would think they were Lucifer incarnated. You would think they were the Antichrist themselves. When some of these guys I've met, and I know them, and I know what they do, and they don't do it, and their heart is never anywhere close to what these people, and God just shows me time and time again that if you're going to lead, Kevin, this is part of the process. If you're going to, ready? Say it with me. If you're going to be exceptional, you will not always be accepted. That's an easy statement, but that's a hard reality. No, it's true. And most people live diminished lives because they're not willing to accept that they won't be accepted. And this is the training ground that I find myself in at this juncture in my life. You know, and I've journeyed a lot of stuff with the Lord and all this other stuff. And why am I saying it? Because I want you to be able to realize, and it's like, well, if I'm vulnerable in saying it, then you too need to be vulnerable. What's your issue? What's your issue? What holds you back? What stops you? What are you afraid of? Fear is an idol. And I know it. And I know it. But I have to deal with it. So I recognize it. And now I'm working on dealing with it. And I'm going to surpass it. And I'm going to kill it. It will die. I will burn it. It will be cast. And you'll see in a year, it won't matter at all. And you'll be like, whoa. <laughs> we have fear. Fear of commitment. Fear of, fear of association. And what we're really afraid of is if people really know me, they're going to reject me. If I'm afraid if I fail, then God's going to reject me. I'm afraid if I, if, I, if, if, God, if I really let God show me what I am, he's going to reject me. He will never reject you. You have to let him show you who you are in order to become who you're created to be. He's showing you because he loves you. He's not showing you because he's condemning you. He's not showing you because he's looking for an excuse to reject you. Who told you that? That's a complete lie. 
God loves us. He will no way cast us out. No way cast us away. So when he's showing us these things, success, time, people go, oh, my time is my own. Is it really? Intellect, these are all idols. We draw from the wrong things. We draw identity from the wrong things. Your identity is not in your PhD or your MBA. Your identity is in Christ. And your PhD and your MBA is submitted unto him and let him elevate it. I was telling her at first service that we draw identity from a godless culture. We're being taught in universities by people who emphatically declare that there is no God. The Bible says that those who declare there are no, is no God, they are called fools. So literally, we're going into systems of fools, and we're idolizing what they say, and we're bowing to that. And I'm not against education, I'm all for it. PhDs, MBA, whatever you get. BAAA, I don't care, augmented classes, it doesn't matter. I'm all for bettering yourself, but what I'm not for is elevating intellect above the gospel. I'm not for that at all. One of the things the Bible tells you, if you want wisdom, look to him. He'll make you wiser than everybody around you. Scripture tells us, Psalm 119, that if you value his word, take counsel from his word, look to his word, his power and his spirit, the Lord says, I'll make you wiser than all your teachers. I'll make you smarter than everybody around you. Well, I don't believe that's possible. Then it won't happen. But I can assure you that if you will listen to him, he will give you the mind of Christ. And he will give you insights and expertise into your field, whatever it may be, that's above and beyond what everybody else sees. Because he wants his people, that's right, he wants his people as the head and not the tail. Okay? So the first thing is, and I'm, I know I'm sharing with you, but we're, I'm trying to help you. We're, we're mining stuff here. So we have the council. First of all, you have to find the places of idolatry. Where is it? You have to trust that what he's saying to you is out of love. He's going to show you where your idolatry lies. Why do I do this, Lord? Because you feel you're unwanted, Kevin. Why do I do this, Lord? Because you feel like you're, you're, you've been rejected and you have wounds from rejection. Therefore, you feel this. You reject people before they reject you. That's your idol because you've been rejected and you don't want to be vulnerable. Your issue is this. Ouch. Just saying. Just saying. You have to find where the idol is. And then you have to find what the root of it is. Why am I greedy, Lord? Why can't I give? Why won't I commit? Why won't I serve? Why am I so arrogant? Why do I get so easily angry? That's what you have to ask. Why do I keep leaving the reservation all the time? I keep leaving. What's my problem? Find the root. They remain because they wouldn't find the root. We have to find the root, deal with the root, and we, come, we become liberated. So Elisha is dying. He's passing away. He's at the end of his ministry. He's dying alone. What does that tell you? Even men of God have issues. Was it God's will that this guy died alone? No. We want to idolize Elisha. God's power moved with Elisha, but Elisha had issues. You saw, he had a, he had a little bit of a preju prejudiced mentality towards people. You watched how he ministered. He watched how he ministered to Naaman. Naaman was a Gentile, and he was prejudiced against him. He wouldn't even go to the door. He talked to Naaman through the door. He's like, I'm not talking to that guy. And he had the same kind of attitude towards people. He had a very prejudiced attitude. He lived a very distant life. He, didn't really, he wasn't really inclusive. Even when you see him with the sons of the prophets, he's not really a relational person. And because probably Elisha had his own issues, he didn't know how to relate. Whatever his background was, he had a, he had a disconnect. He, had to, he finds himself dying alone. And Jehoash is the king, and the king comes to, to dying Elisha, and he comes, next slide, for two reasons. He comes, number one, to honor him, and the second thing he does is he comes to receive from him. 
Joash comes before Elisha, and he begins to weep as Elisha's dying, and he says, my father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel. Well, what is he doing? He's honoring Elisha, but he also wants to receive because he uses the same words that Elisha used to Elijah. So when Elijah went up in the chariot, Elisha said, my father, my father, the chariots and the horsemen of Israel, and the mantle fell. So clearly, he's coming not just to honor him, he's coming to receive. So let me just be clear. It's okay to come to receive. It's okay to receive from Jesus. He's not offended that you come to receive. What, but what the depth of your reception is going to be directly related to the depth of your honor. Say it with me. Honor creates access. You will honor him, and the depth of what he wants to give you will come. The king comes and honors Elisha, and Elisha gives the king a great gift here. And he says to him, you come to honor me. Elisha refuses to leave his work unfinished. Elisha's going to leave a legacy. He said, I'm not going to leave this place with the Arameans still in control of God's people. I'm not going to leave my people in bondage. I'm passing, but I'm not, that's not going to happen. And so Elisha gets a word from the Lord, and he tells the king, go get a bow and get some arrows. And so the king goes and gets a bow and gets some arrows. And he says, take the bow in your hands. And he said to the king of Israel when he had finished, Elijah put his hands on the king's hand. So basically, the king's going to draw the bow, and Elisha's behind him, helping him draw the bow. And he tells the king, say this with me, open the east window. And he tells him to shoot the arrow out the east window. And he says, and so there's a prophetic act of shooting the arrow, and there's a prophetic declaration over the prophetic act. You don't think prophetic is important? And so he shoots the prophetic arrow, and an act... A, heaven, a, a divine act, and he puts a decree over it. And he says, this is the arrow of the Lord's victory, your victory over Aram. You will completely destroy the Arameans. So he tells him. The first thing he tells him to do is get the bow. Okay? So a bow is significant of covenant. What's that multicolored thing that hangs in the sky that kind of goes like that? Anybody know what it's called? Rainbow. That's the bow of the Lord. And it's directly related to covenant, and it's directly related to promise. So a bow and arrow is always related prophetically to covenant and promise. So what's happening here is God's making a covenant, and he's releasing a promise. That's what's happening. And that covenant promise is made in partnership. So you saw the man of God representing heaven, and you saw the king representing the earth, and you saw them in partnership releasing the arrow of promise. And God is saying, I will partner with you on my promises. You understand? but the king was required to do something. God will partner with you on his promises. But we're going to see that there's a requirement. And so what he did is he opened the east window. He opened the window in the direction of a new day. There are people here today. Come on. Is there anybody here? You need to get up. Jesus didn't do it for him. The prophet didn't open the window. You need to get up and open the window in the direction of a new day. That's right. You need to stop rolling in a corner and sucking your thumb and being mad because nobody notices you or you're all wound up in your past or things aren't the way that, they, that you want them to be. You need to open the window in the direction of a new day, lay hold of a promise of God, and let it fly. That's what you need to do. This is how this stuff works, right? It's true. We are the people of two worlds. If you think your life comes from this world, you're completely missing it. We are symbiotically bound to the kingdom above. As, above. as above, so beneath. On earth as it is in heaven. That is the covenant promise over God's people. So until we operate from that world to hit this one, we're not going to see a whole lot happen. But when we understand that God's intention is for us to open the window in a direction of a new day, his intention for us is to reach up, lay hold of a promise, and loose it in the direction of a new day, then stuff begins to happen. 
They did it together. So God partners with the promise, so he looses the arrow, then he takes a handful of arrows and puts it in the king's hand. So God will partner with the promise, but he puts the future in your hands. He will partner with the promise, but he puts the ability within your hands. It's a mutual agreement to fulfill the partnership of the promise, but God says, you've got to do something, Jehoash. I'm not going to do this for you. And here again, we come right up against the main teaching of the churches. Jesus is going to do it all for us. God's going to do what God wants to do. No, he's not. You don't see that in the Old Testament. You don't see that in the New Testament. That is a dogma. That is a doctrine created by men, created by powerless leaders who don't understand spiritual things. Therefore, they manifest nothing. And so they have to give a reason why they can't manifest. And so they they cast the responsibility off on the Lord and say, well, the Lord doesn't want it to happen. That's a cop-out. It's a cop-out. That's not the truth. The truth is God says this, and we need to learn to manifest it. He's expecting us to bring it into this world. He's expecting us to take what he has said and loose it and make it happen. Next slide. Your present and your past is nothing. Say this with me. My most hopeful days are before me. My best days are yet to come. Do you believe that? That's truth. Anything other than that is a lie and it's an idol and you're worshiping it. The Bible says that he moves us from glory to glory. He says that our righteousness will burst forth like the noonday. It's going to come forth. Our best is yet to come. Life is yet to come. Our glory is yet to be seen. He says, take the arrows. The king takes the arrows. He says, strike the ground. The king takes the arrows and strikes the ground three times. The prophet gets angry. Say, why did he get angry? Great question. I'm going to hope he answer that. And he says, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated them completely. But now you only did it three times. You're only going to defeat them three times. So why is, why is Elisha angry? It's like, duh, the guy didn't know. You know, you give me the arrows and like beat them on the ground. I'm like, okay, duh, you know. Well, there's a lot of reasons. One of the reasons is you just had a prophetic encounter, okay? The dude just had a prophetic encounter. Open the east window, the man of God coming around you, and loosing the arrow in a prophetic act. Excuse me, that's powerful, okay? And the Christian fails to discern the divine. We fail to discern the power of the moment that we find ourselves in. We don't discern it. He didn't discern the moment that he was in. He didn't discern what just happened. God just loosed an arrow out there that said, this is your victory, now show it forth. Now show forth what God has done. And he goes, Really? You're really showing forth what God has done. The prophet became angry because he said, having been given so much, why do you settle for so little? That's the, that's the question. Christian, that's our question. Having been given so much great and precious promises by which we partake of the divine nature, Peter says, having been given so much, so great a salvation, why do we settle for so little? Can you ask yourself that question? I realize I'm giving you a lot of heavy knowledge here this morning, but why don't you ask yourself that question? Let's just ask it together, rhetorically. Just say this. I have been given so much. Now I want you to say your name. Put your hand, tap yourself on the heart. And again, I'm going to use my name. And I want you to say, Kevin, you've been given so much. Why do you settle for so little? Why? A prophetic act. Maybe the king viewed it as beneath him. You want me to beat arrows? Oh, come on, man. You want to beat arrows? We, we practice this stuff in here every day, every week. Re- release to the Lord, receive from the Lord. I want you to see yourself stepping through a door. I want you to see this happening. I'm not doing that. That sounds dumb. I'm not imagining no waterfall. 
I don't want to see no gates opening up or dry ground coming to life. I'm not doing that. Give to Jesus? Oh, please. Receive the Spirit coming over me? That's weird. I don't want to do that either. Jehoash. Gehazi. The list goes on. It was beneath him. Intellectual superior. God uses prophetic to humble your intellectual. I'm telling you right now. Shoot the arrow, beat the ground. I mean, this king's probably pretty educated. He's three generations from Jehu. His great-grandfather was Jehoshaphat. I mean, Jehoshaphat's one of the best, greatest kingdoms of Judah that ever lived. So he comes from a very distinct royal line. You don't think he's probably very educated, understood certain things, but he was dull to the spirit. And he viewed it as beneath him. I'm too intellectual for that. I'm too superior for that. That's why we have Ichabod over all of our churches, because we find no room for the power of God nor the Holy Spirit. And so it's called Ichabod means no glory. There's no manifested presence. There's no manifested glory. Lots of intellectualism, lots of opinions, lots of dogma, lots of pseudo this and pseudo that, but no reality. As for me, you can take away all the gloss and all the shine. And I like the gloss and I like the shine. I do. I enjoy it. We all should, right? I like skinny jeans and smoke machines. I like light shows. I like all that. That's really fun for me. I enjoy that. But if, we are, if that is compromising substance, then give me substance. If that is not accompanied with substance, or if substance must subject itself to that, then I don't want that. I want substance. I want reality. I don't want something that just lifts me. I want something that works and manifests and becomes reality. Maybe he said this, arrows are expensive. You know I should save a few. These are expensive. He was down to 10 chariots or five chariots and 10,000 men. And Elijah just told him, we're going to take the arm. We're going to take that little army and beat those guys. He's like, I don't know. We better save some arrows. Here's what you need to know. As a Christian, Jesus expects you, ready, to understand your inheritance. Oh, let's say it together. Jesus expects me to understand my inheritance, to draw from my inheritance, and to spend it all. That's right. That's right. He expects you to spend every single thing that belongs to you and to hold nothing back. And you say, if I spend it all, Kevin, where's it going to come from? Oh, contraire. There's our, now we're coming up against the thinking, the limited thinking of your mind. Okay? Now we're confronting that. Well, what does it mean? God is a God of abundance. You understand that? It doesn't run out. The oil only ran out when she stopped putting the vessels out. The water will flow. So you can give it all and he's going to bring it more back. Then you can give it all and he's going to give it back. You can give it all and he's going to give it back. And each time, that's right, each time you give it all, you, in, you actually increase your capacity. He's actually strengthening your capacity to give when you give it all. So he expects you to not only know your inheritance, he expects you to draw from your inheritance and he expects you to use every part of it and to hold nothing back. That was the problem. The king was holding back. True. Having been given so much, why do we settle for little? So little. He was afraid of not doing it right. Jesus, say this with me. Jesus is not interested in my perfection. Let me just let that go out there because I just want to offend some religious people this morning. I just want... Because if you're not offended, you're not going to change. So let me just push you back. Jesus is not interested in your perfection. Say this with me. He is interested in my direction. It has nothing to do with your perfection. It has to do with your direction. Nothing. People, well, be holy because I am holy. What's that mean? That is a word to show you that you can't do it. That's all that's meant to do. Be holy. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Well, how are we working? 
How's anybody, anybody doing? Anybody want to stand up here and testify how that works in their life? Because it wasn't given for that reason. It was given to humble man to show that man cannot be perfect. That's why. It's given to show you that you are not sufficient in yourself. I can never have the perfection of God. I'm not, I, so how will I get the perfection of God? And Jesus will go, I'm glad you asked. You can borrow mine. I'll give you my perfection. I can never be righteous. Be righteous as your Father in heaven. So this is what we spend our time on. I got to be righteous. I got to be perfect. I got to do this. The Bible says I got to do this because you don't understand what it's talking about. It's, t- it's not telling you to be more of you. It's telling you to be more of him. It's not telling you to raise your level. It's telling you to come into his level. You can raise your level, but do it in Christ. Do it with the Spirit. Let him raise you up. That's the point. So the idea of perfection is to show you you can't be perfect because we can't. I know there are people that think they are. I had a pastor tell me one time I haven't sinned in six years. He told me that. And you'll hear me say this about 100 times if you hang out at this church because I had him repeat it to me. I said, what did you say? I was on the phone with him. He's like, I'm not going to use that. I haven't sinned in six years. I said, I go, what? (laughs) I guess self-righteousness doesn't count as a sin to him at all. In any way, I wanted to always say, well, let me bring your wife in. Can I bring your wife into this conversation? Now, this man just told me. (laughs) How about your kids? They're going to be real honest. Your daddy just told me that he hasn't sinned in six years. Oh, that's not true. I heard him tell a lie to the lady at the store. You know, it's like... He failed to discern the moment. He was afraid he didn't have what it takes. Say this with me. He doesn't have what it takes. Say this with me. Jesus has no confidence in me. Crickets. Just let that marinate. And he says this. But he does have full confidence in himself, in me. You don't have what it takes, so get over yourself. It's true. No, it's true. (laughs) You don't have it. But in the Spirit... You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, right? But without the Spirit, you're like over here with Paul. On the other hand, you're like, I know that is in me, and my flesh dwells no good thing. So if you see how these two scriptures work, in your flesh, there's not, you don't have anything. But in the Spirit, you're like Superman. You're Supergirl. You're Wonder Woman. I mean, you run through a wall, leap tall buildings in a single bound. You have impossible abilities. So in the Spirit, in Christ, his confidence is in his Spirit. His confidence is not in the flesh. Have no confidence in the flesh, the Bible says. Our confidence is in the Holy Spirit. So every time you don't feel like you can do it, just get in the Spirit. Real easy. Start worshiping, coming into adoration. Lord, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know what I'm doing. Let him give you downloads. He may just be imparting things to you and just releasing strength into you. He may give you wisdom. He may give you insight. He may give you ability. He may bring relationships across your path. There's a lot of things he's going to do, but he's not going to do it until you get in the Spirit. Some of you, you start asking, you go in the spirit, you start asking God for something, and you just feel power moving into you. And you go, well, he's not answering. Well, he is answering. He's giving you an impartation. You understand? You're like, I'm asking God for what to do, and all I feel is power. Well, take the power. Clearly, he's giving you something. It may not be what you wanted, but he's probably fortifying you. Maybe he's strengthening your frame so that you have the ability to bear what he's about to tell you. <laughs> he's got to give you strength. Okay, I've got I to strengthen Kevin because I'm going to tell him something here, and he's too weak to hold it. So let me put power in him. Power me up, Lord. Then he drops the hammer, and I go, okay, I can handle that. You know, that's how it works. The king sends forth the promise, but, or God sends forth the promise, but he puts the future in the king's hand. Next slide. Your past does not hold you, Christian. God was expecting that he hold nothing back. He came looking for something. The king wanted something because of the words that he said. But truly, when it was revealed, he was not truly hungry for it. When the rubber met the road, I want this. LeBron James wants to be an NBA champion. Okay? The guy's been in the finals what? I mean, is it eight times or nine times? 
eight times in a row. And everybody wants to be like LeBron. But are, you up, are those guys up at 5 in the morning? Are they doing the workouts and the training? Yeah, he's got raw ability, but he takes his raw ability to a whole other level. I mean, that dude is on a whole other level. Because he wants something, and he truly demonstrates that he's hungry for it. He makes the sacrifices. That's what, you know what passion means? Passion means suffer for or suffer with. So when you say, I have a passion for basketball, and you're not willing to suffer for it, you really don't have a passion for basketball. You're not willing to make the, the compromises, the, the sacrifices, the, 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 the 5 a.m., the workout, the diet, the everything. You really don't. You really don't. You really don't. Because passion is related to what you're willing to suffer for or what you're willing to sacrifice for. He was expecting that they hold nothing back. God's like, look, I'm giving you a promise, and I want to do something amazing in this generation, and I want to do something amazing, and I'm giving it to you. And he wanted him to be hungry for it. Anybody know who Mick Fanning is? Nobody? You know where Jay Bay is? You guys do. You're South African, so you know. So Mick Fanning is an Australian surfer, and he was competing in the, in the championships in, in, South, in South Africa. This is a couple years back, I think 2013. And during this competition, he was attacked by not one, but two sharks. Nobody else got attacked by sharks except this guy. So day one, he's paddling out, doo doo doo. A great white comes, bites at the back, bites his cord. He said he turned around, he punched the shark, and then the rescue boat was there and he got in the boat. So that's day one. Day two, he goes out, paddles out again, and here comes another shark. Now it's not attacking this guy, it's not attacking this guy, it's attacking him. So he has to get rescued, drawn out of the, drawn out of the water, right? So he's, that, that's what ends up happening to him. You and I would say, well, clearly the ocean is telling me I'm not wanted, you know? <laughs> Time to call it a career. The sea is telling me it's time to move on. He went back in, continued to compete, and finished out the tournament and everything. And they asked him, what makes you do what you do? And he says this, you have to want to ride the wave more than you fear the sharks. We want to ride the wave, but we really, what we're really subjecting ourselves to is the fear of the sharks. Everybody wants this, but what we subject ourselves to is the fear of the sharks. We won't really get in the water. If you're going to ride waves, you're going to face sharks, right? Kevin, I'm preaching to myself here, right? If you're going to ride the waves, you're going to swim with sharks. It's just inevitable. It's going to happen. Do you understand that? Everybody wants something, but we want it done for us. We don't understand that there's a commitment. We don't understand that there's a sacrifice. We don't understand that there's a process that's attached to it. Your arrows are your gifts, talents, and abilities, and there's commands attached to it. We're not to hold anything back. Jesus wants you to die with your quiver empty. Okay? Everything he's given to you is to be used. Everything that you possess is to be pushed forward. Why did he settle for little? So here's the, well, I'll just use this one and we're going to jump to the next one and we're going to be done. But this next one, I have a really good point. I hope I can make it at the last slides. Last, yeah. We blame God for a lack of concern. So the king could go, Lord, you don't care about our people. If you cared about our people, you would come down and deliver our people. So we blame God for the concern, and the story shows us that it wasn't God's concern, it was the king's lack of urgency. We saw last week that when the lepers left the gate at dusk, at dusk the Lord released the sound of chariots among the enemy and scattered them. So until the lepers, the unwanted, whatever, without, the people without an excuse, moved forward, heaven didn't move. We always want to blame God, but he gives you something. He shows you a promise. He shows you an arrow. He puts abilities in your hands, and he's waiting for you to show a little urgency. He's waiting for you to show a little initiative. He said he's going to fulfill the promise. He's going to partner with you, but he's given you something in your hand, and he tells you don't settle for little. 
Get in the game and use it. Do it. Next slide. Say this with me. A heroic life disrupts the narrative. So if you don't know what a narrative is, it's a storyline. Okay? So we have a storyline. So how, how does this work? You have a, narrow, a narrative. People are in a building. They're dying. The narrative is they're all going to die in the burning building. Some hero runs in there, rescues the people, takes them out of the building, and completely alters the narrative. Heroic actions and lives alter the narrative. We have mankind lost in sin, going to hell, hopeless and helpless without Christ, without salvation, no ability to save ourselves, completely in darkness. The hero comes along, interrupts the narrative. Jesus comes. Some of you, your life was going this way. The narrative was this way. You encounter the Lord, and the narrative completely changes. Heroic lives change the narrative. You understand that? We are called to live heroic lives and change the narrative. We're doing a school. I'll just throw this in here. We're doing a school. We're doing a school for a certain group of kids and a certain group of ability. This is the vision. The narrative that is over the, ch the lives of these children says this. Society says this is the way it's going to be. This is what your expectations are going to be. This is how you're always going to end up. This is what it's going to be. This is the narrative. We want to drop a school, boom, right in the middle of that, and we want to disrupt that narrative. And we want to say, no, it doesn't have to be like that. No, it doesn't have to be like that. And no, that's not the best you can achieve. And no, that's not the best that's going to go for you. Do you understand how this works? We, say this with me. I'm called. You don't, you don't believe me. Come on, say it with me. I am called to be heroic. I am empowered with gifts, talents, abilities, commands, presence, promise, power from heaven. I am called to be heroic and to disrupt the narrative. What does it look like? Well, it looks like being self-aware. Do you know who you are? Do you know your identity? Do you know your gifts and talents, your abilities? It's part of the reason with visioneering. It plays into this one. Perspectives. Know what really matters. Do you know what your perspective is, what really matters? So, okay, we, Sherry and I go shopping sometimes. I, Monday's like, you know, just take me here day. So I take her wherever she wants to go. And so I'm in a store, right? And they're bringing out all this new merchandise. And so I'm just kind of, I'm just like cruising over there. And so they bring out all these bags. And there's this really cool bag. Not like I need a bag. I don't need a bag. But I just wanted to look at it. I go to look at the bag. And as I could put my hands on the bag, this woman reaches over the top and yanks the bag out of my hand and walks away and starts looking at it. I'm standing here going, what? Okay, so I'm walking away, like, and I'm going, I, I just start walking through the store and I'm like, Lord, Lord, you know, and I hear the, I told Sherry, she started laughing, so I told the, I told Sherry, I, I heard the Lord go, Kevin, get perspective, that's what I heard him say, you know, and I was like, wow, I need to get perspective, I was like, wow, I don't really need the bag, I don't really want the bag, she probably needs it better than me, I don't, you know, and so I had to get perspective, but I was in a moment where I had no perspective, right, I was ready to tackle, anyway, we have to have perspective, you have to know what really matters, what really matters, Inventory. You have to take inventory. This is just bullets for you to think about later. What do you have? What do you, but here's the bigger question. This is the question you need to ask yourself. This is really, really it. What? Say this with me. Lord? Oh, it's going to be good. What am I truly capable of? Yeah. He's going to tell you. He's going to start talking to you. Some of you guys can start getting visions. You're going to start getting dreams. I believe I can do this. I believe I can do that. I don't know where this came from because three weeks ago I didn't think that. Well, you asked the Holy Spirit, and now he's going to show you. The only, say this with me. The only one stopping me is me. That's it. People, I don't have the education. Work ethic is greater than education. Education's great as long as you have a work ethic. If you have a work ethic, 
and you don't have education, you can win. If you have education and you don't have a work ethic, you're not going to win. I don't care how much education you have. Okay? What's that 30-year-old guy that lives with his parents? I think he's got like an MBA or something. Did you guys see that story? He sued his parents to not move out of his basement. He's really educated, but he has no work ethic. None at all. So you can be educated and not have a work ethic, and you're going to be living in your parents' basement, and he's like suing your parents to not move out of the house kind of thing. Right? He has no, his, that's, a clear, that's a classic example of no work ethic. No help there. Nobody can help him. Nobody can help the guy if he doesn't have a work ethic. Nobody. People go, I don't have any money. I always tell them, you have the internet. You have the internet. You don't have any money. You have the greatest miracle that has happened in 21 centuries is the internet. People look at it as, a, as a, some kind of curse. It's not a curse, it's a blessing. It all depends on your perspective. It just really depends on your perspective. You can do more on that. You can do something on that internet 24-7. You can sell crap out of your garage and make money. You can do a side hustle. You can, do, you can get, get an app that shows you how to go to restaurants and eat the food for free and get paid to do it. And there's all kinds of stuff that's out there. There's all kinds of opportunities out there. So not having money is an excuse. It's not an excuse. There's something been handed to you. Well, I'm not going to make $1,000 a week. No, but you might make $1,000 a month. Does that help? Yeah, exactly. Thank you. I mean, it's the greatest thing. It's global. And it gives you power to do things that you wouldn't ordinarily do. Yeah. Uh, I got a bunch of crap in my house. Can I use the word crap here? Is that okay? So I want to give to the school. It looks like the school's back on the project. So I'm like, okay, I want to give. So I put all this stuff up. I'm probably going to sell $1,000 on eBay, I hope, this weekend. And where's it going to go? It's going to go to the store. Where, where's it going? It's, it's just junk from my garage. It's been sitting there. I haven't had it. haven't used it in years. It's stuff that has value. It's gone down in value since I bought it, of course. But stuff that's basically useless to me. I put it on the internet. Boom. Immediately. You need $1,000 to start a business? Look in your garage. Look around. See what you have. There's lots of opportunities. There's no excuse on that one, guys. None. So anyway, don't want to spend time on that. But don't use excuses. As, as, don't use, I don't have any money as an excuse. This, this is the remote control of your life. You have it right here. Every, the internet is in the room right now. Right now. And the internet is at scale. So eight years ago, they didn't have smartphones with internet, that, which means the ability of scale with the internet became a global market and it became something that was cross, cross you know, in the room at all times. Now it is. You want to you find a piece of furniture for free? You can find it right now. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that's going on. Right now, sitting on, you're sitting in your back pocket. You don't have, you have, we have no excuses. Pick something. Pass, personal vision, mission, igniting into an apostolic vision. I'll probably tell this in visionary, the mandate through the church. So this is how we fulfill it. We fulfill the calling. We fulfill the purpose through understanding and developing a personal vision and getting that down. And then also partnering and united with a corporate vision through the church. The corporate church receives a blueprint from heaven. This is how it's supposed to work. I'm not saying it works this way all the time. We're supposed to receive a blueprint from heaven. And we're supposed to move, the leader is supposed to move the church into the blueprint of heaven. And as we begin to move into the blueprint of heaven, all of a sudden lives begin to rise. The life of the church begins to rise. The life of the people begins to rise. The, and the vision of heaven begins to move out where God wants it. And it begins to affect change all around. We're meeting with this church. We're trying to get this school building this year. I know it's an impossibility, but we're, we believe in a God of, we believe in a God of miracles. So... We're meeting and we were praying at the building real quick. I'll let you guys go. But we're meeting at the building. You're going to pray at the end, so it's going to be powerful. We're meeting with these people at the end, and I'm meeting with them. And, I'm, and we were all praying in the parking lot. And 
And I was just, you know, I'm thinking down these lanes, and the Lord told me, it's not about Elevate, Kevin, and it's not about this church, and it's not about the two of you working together. That's not what this is about. This is about what I want to bring into the world. That's what he showed me. It's, it's not about this. It's not about that. It's about what I want to bring into the world. And I began to meditate on that, and I began to understand, and I feel the glory on me right now, and I began to receive, and I began to hear the Lord tell me, like, I want to bring this into the world. I've, I, this isn't new to me. I've, this is stuff that I want to do. I'm trusting you. So I'm giving this to you, and I'm expecting you to not settle for so little. I'm expecting you to understand this is an arrow of promise and to take what I've put in your hands and to beat it on the ground until it manifests into the world. This is what I'm expecting you to do. It's not about this church. It's not about that church. It's not about any church in particular. It's not even about the neighborhood. It's about what I want to bring into the world. And all of a sudden, I was like, I mean, I don't even understand fully what that means. I just telling you I got a revelation off that. I was like, wow, that's crazy. And so we partner to bring, come on, that's right. We partner to bring what he wants. That's the corporate vision. So when the church, when we partner together on this, we're able to achieve something that we wouldn't ordinarily ever be able to achieve. And part of your destiny is partnering with this. You have no idea where this thing is going to go. You have no idea. This, this, is, this thing, in my opinion, is very radical, and it can affect change on such levels that I don't even think we fully understand what this is going to do. And I, my goal is to multiply the schools. That's my goal. I don't want to do one. I told the lady when we were there, I go, UK with a couple of hundred kids here. I'm like, you know, we're going to disrupt your quiet enjoyment. I want you to know that because it's a very quiet place, birds chirping, you know, peaceful serenity. You know, you could really just get into the spirit there, you know. And I told her, I said, we're going to bring kids in here and it's going to disrupt it. I said, are you guys aware of that? She said, absolutely. And then she told me, she's like, if you want to put 300 kids here, we're okay with it. The building will hold about 120. They have an acre and a half behind them. And then she told me, if you, if you guys outgrow the building, you can, do the, um, you can put portables or, um, or a modular building on the, on the land behind us. And she, I, I asked her that again on the phone. I said, you guys are okay with that? I said, so in two years, when I want to drop a modular on that acre and a half out there, you guys are going to be okay with that? She said, absolutely. She said they voted unanimously to do a school. This is what they want to do. They built an education wing. They can't do it. They're looking for somebody to partner with them to be able to do it. Yeah. <laughs> I walk into the building. It's like brand new. I'm like, what? You guys got this building, 10 classrooms, ready to go. What? And you have an acre and a half behind you, wide open. I'm like, what? I tried to not get too excited. I was like, yeah, mm -hmm, yeah. And Sherry was kind of like looking around. She wasn't quite getting the concept. But me, I know what I'd been praying for. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is almost ideal. <laughs> I was trying to not tip my hand. Trying to be, yes, oh, yes. Yeah, well, we'll have to think about this. We'll have to think about this. And I'm like, we're doing it now. No, anyway. So last slide. Let's pray. So pray about being a part of the school. We need to raise more money. So we need several things. If you want to pray... Pray about giving to the school. Pray about pray that we get the structure right. I, I have confidence in the structure, but we need to get we have to scale it down. We're looking for 30 to 50 kids. We have to get the right amount of kids. We have to recruit the kids. So we need to believe God that the kids come, that the, everything related to the scholarships and everything comes to pass. And then um, we're they're meeting tomorrow for a because uh, we're not going to take the whole building. She gave me a price for the whole building, but she said you won't need it the first year. I said no. She said how much will you need? I told her how much we would need. So they're going to meet tomorrow to decide what their price is, is if we take part of it for the first year. So they're going to lower the price even more for us, which would be, well, that would be great. So yeah, exactly. So we need that to happen. We need the school, the students, and just, there's a lot of variables, and we have 90 days. 
basically 13 weeks to pull this off. And uh, yeah, exciting, exciting times. <laughs> we're going to beat the arrows and we're going to go in. So say, stand up with me if you would, please. Let's finish it off. Pray it out. I'm so grateful. You know what I love about this church? Is you guys love Jesus. And you guys, yeah. Who's yelling over there? Yes. You guys love the Lord. You're hungry for what he has. You pull on it, and it just, it just happens. So let's just say this out. Let's just say this. Jesus, Jesus I, will live I will live heroically in my generation. I believe my best is yet to come. Ready? I release the arrow of my life towards a new day in a new direction. I release the arrow of my life in the direction of hope, presence, power, and promise. Hold the chair. Holy Spirit, show me my idols. <laughs> show me the past that must be reconciled in order to move beyond bondage and into future. Here we go. I will not hold back. I will not save the arrows. I will discover my personal mission and I will unite myself with the corporate vision. I will disrupt the narrative for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, God loves you. Let me bless you. We got the small group training. If you're here for that, we want to tell you that's going to probably happen right over there. I'm going to go over here. If you have kidney issues or anything with your pancreas, I'm going to hang out right over there for just a few minutes, and I will pray for you. And if you want to come and help me pray for people, please do. But let me just bless you. And any of the prayer team, you're, without a doubt, you're welcome to go over there. Um, I'm just calling out those things. But let me bless you. May the Lord bless you. Come on, receive it. Let it just come upon you. May the Lord bless you. Just feel his blessing come over you. May the Lord keep you. I want you to feel secure. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you. May you just feel His love, His presence, His protection, His favor. He loves you. May the Lord give you peace. May you forever live within His favor. In Jesus' name, amen. God loves you.